not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and we're syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast at bze.org.au or 3cr.org.au. My name's Michael Steindl and today I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Kay Winnigal. Hi Mike, hi listeners. And Natalie Bucknell. Hello everybody. Managing the panel again for us today. So this is the Science and Technology and Solutions show, Climate Solutions and we generally concentrate on fairly technical issues, perhaps the latest battery and so on. Today we're deviating a little bit further into the political field, as none of these solutions can come into place unless the politics is right. A year ago, in June 2017 that is, the Australian Senate referred an important matter, in capitals, to the Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade References Committee for inquiry and report. That matter was the implications of climate change for Australia's national security. After taking some 70 submissions and holding two public hearings, the report was released in May this year. To explain the report and to provide some commentary, we're delighted today to be joined by Associate Professor Matt MacDonald. Matt's from the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. His research focuses on approaches to security and their application to issues such as environmental change. Australian foreign policy and security policy, climate politics and Asian-Pacific security dynamics all come under that heading. Welcome, Matt, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Matt, the Senate inquiry, as we just said, recently investigated the implications of climate change for Australia's national security. What was the origin of this inquiry? It was actually the final inquiry that was suggested by um, former Green Senator Scott Ludlam, who, of course, was uh, the first to be ruled out on citizenship grounds as a result of having a New Zealand passport. So it was the final submission. He, individual senators are able, who are members of that committee, are able to put forward suggestions for inquiry, and that was the last one of his before, yes, he left the Senate. So, Matt, what are the mechanics of a Senate inquiry? Who was on the committee? The committee is made up of a range of senators from different... um, from different political parties. And the idea behind the, the Senate committee is that it actually provides some basis for genuine expert advice on a particular policy area and hopefully through that process then being composed of senators from a range of different political parties, the idea is that you can then have something like a expert-driven consensus-based approach to this is then how Australia should respond to a particular challenge. So it really is one site where ideally you get expertise from the broader community that finds its way into speaking directly to to, uh, parliamentarians about how Australia should respond to a particular policy area. So in this instance, Matt, what types of organisations and individuals made submissions? Well, the Senate Senate inquiries are generally open to anyone, really, in terms of submission. So you will get just, uh, you know, your average concerned citizen who follows various inquiries and or 
or follows the activities of this particular committee and will submit their general views. But in this instance, we saw a combination of submissions from some academics like myself who've worked on this issue or on related issues for a period of time, some uh, think tanks that do a bit of work or policy groupings that do a bit of work in this space. You know, so like I understand framework. Beyond Zero Emissions put in a submission. That's right, yes. That's right. So we have, uh, yes, NGO groups, a combination of research-based NGO groups, which is in the past that's certainly, at least my understanding, more the type of work that when it comes to Australian security implications of climate change, uh, ASPE, the Australian Strategic and Policy Institute, they've put in a submission. But then also it's open to government departments. So in this instance, you had a range of departments, including foreign affairs and trade, defence itself, and immigration and border protection, as it was at the time, submitting to that inquiry as well, saying from their point of view, this, these are the key issues in that particular space. So it really is a range of different submissions. So were any of these solicited by the committee or are they all just dependent on, on who's aware of the inquiry and, and put their hands up? Well, it's a combination. So, yes, yeah, some are... Um, some are solicited, so um, so yes, yeah, some of us received an email saying you might be aware that this is going on and we welcome your contribution to this. And then there are others where people just thought, this looks like the sort of thing I can make a contribution to. So even if you're working as an academic, even if you're working directly in this space, if you haven't got sort of profile in that area, it may be the, a way of sort of indicating to policymakers this is a space I'm working in I've got concerns about. But yes, there, there were certainly some including mine, that were um, solicited. I actually note you submitted as a private individual too, Matt. Yeah, that's right. We, um, we do a combination. We have through our Centre for Policy Futures here at uh, the university, we sometimes um, collate, bring together experts who work on a given area and get them to work together on a submission. But for this, in this particular instance, given that I've done quite a bit of work in this space and there's not as many people at UQ who work directly on this. I thought, yes, this probably makes more sense as an individual submission. So you already mentioned that, of course, the Department of Defence made a submission. What were their concerns and did, did you find any climate deniers in the defence area? No, well, actually, one of the fascinating things, and I flagged this in my uh, conversation piece that was a, a commentary on the report, one of the fascinating things in defence, you don't tend to get, you get them, you know, we have a vision of defence as being relatively conservative institutional organisation, but actually they are required to think long-term into the future when it, when you're thinking about things like defence acquisition debates, what sort of equipment do we need, what sort of training do we need for the future, what future threats are. Defence white papers and defence planning has to look um, decades into the future and so in some senses they're more open I think in many ways to looking seriously at the implications of um, an issue, a longer term issue like climate change. Their submission was interesting in that they were acknowledging that there are a range of different sort of vulnerabilities that defence in and of itself has so things like it the scale of its uh, infrastructure and the vulnerability of defence infrastructure in the states to manifestations of climate change like rising sea levels or natural disasters. They noted as well the increasing pressure on the ADF to provide disaster relief. So humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions have increased really significantly over the past decade and they noted this is likely to be a continued trend. 
also action both within the region and potentially in Australia. So we saw, you know, defence obviously involved in responses to the bushfires in Victoria, the floods in Queensland. So they're concerned that basically it was interesting that their report identified that they see it as an important as an important role but make the point explicitly that the ADF is not primarily designed to deal with those types of missions that essentially it is about the defence of the Australian state and so you know we have to be careful and aware about how far we push its role in that context or at least fund that sufficiently and then I think the final point that I'd want to make about the defence submission is that they were really keen to demonstrate that actually because I think they could see the writing on the wall given the way the the way this particular inquiry was worded there was obviously going to be plenty of submissions focusing on how defence needs to do more and so they are keen in general to say these are all the things we are currently doing in this space in terms of preparing for the security implications of climate change. The Department of Defence has been working much as you said just before has been much working much more in this area in terms of disaster relief and humanitarian aid, and that's going to be become more and more prevalent throughout the Pacific Islands, not only our own country. There is no one else that can play that role, really, is it? Well, in some senses, the humanitarian and humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions are actually coordinated through Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So, they usually the ADF plays a fairly prominent role within that, but it may be it depends on the nature of the emergency. And so, say humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions have involved DFAT representatives as well as say you know Australian Federal Police alongside the uh, Department of Defence. But certain types of activities that are involved in some of those missions, like large-scale responses to, say, cyclones in the region, it really does require, when you're talking about mass transportation of equipment, of resources, and potentially of uh, when it comes to population movement, you really do need defence to play that central role. And, you know, arguably, from their point of view, they would want levels of funding and commitment to equipment and infrastructure that are consistent with that role if they're being asked to play it more and more. Mm. So it's, it's and with refugees, of, of course. Yeah. That's right. Well, there was some suggestion of, of the possibility that we'd see significant displacement associated with climate change, and it's telling that this was central to the then immigration and border protection submission that they were deeply concerned about this, this issue and aware of the need to really take seriously the idea that we'd be dealing with even more irregular migration in the region. It might be worth me just listing off the areas for listeners. So um, conclusion 6.1 of the committee, the first conclusion says, the committee notes the consensus from the evidence that climate change is exacerbating threats and risks to Australia's national security. These include sea level rise, bushfires, droughts, extreme rainfall events and high-intensity cyclones, a couple of which you already mentioned, Matt. Um, We were very surprised to read that Defence Department is the largest landowner in Australia, What are the implications of climate change for their real estate holdings? Well, potentially uh, quite significant because a lot of them are, a lot of those areas are coastal. I mean, you could say that about Australia, about Mm -hmm. Australian development generally, that most real estate is coastal. But but for them, this is a real concern. So a few years ago, they did actually do a a survey about this sort of how vulnerable our defence, is our defence infrastructure to the um, manifestations of climate change. And they were talking then specifically about the implications 
associated with things like rising sea level, but also potentially increased levels of uh, increased temperatures. So it's interesting that uh, I don't know if you still have the recommendations in front of you. I think it's recommendation four from memory that indicates one of one of the researchers who submitted who appeared before the Senate to talk about the this particular issue noted that the Department of Defence had undertaken this sort of audit of climate risk to its estate and the committee ultimately recommended that the Department of Defence consider releasing uh, that version or an unclassified, or at least an unclassified version of that assessment to the broader public to be aware of the, the sort of vulnerabilities faced. Matt, while many of the recommendations are specifically for the Department of Defence, a core theme of the report is the need for a whole-of-government response. Besides adapting to climate change, the government needs to take action to limit the extent of the problem in the first place. Mm. I had to laugh when I read that because that's not really happening, is it? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're done here then. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Look, yeah, that, I mean, so Senate... To, to pivot back to an earlier question, Senate recommendations are obviously those that, uh, you know, there are opportunities to really raise awareness about particular issues, and there are, but there are also where you're likely to see follow-through in terms of policy. It's often on more technical dimensions of policy settings where you have experts saying, actually, we do this in this way. It would make a lot more sense to do it in this way. It wouldn't necessarily cost a lot, but these are the types of transitions you can make. And actually, there are a few of the recommendations that are possible to imagine, say, defence implementing relatively without much controversy, but where I think it will be really challenging if if we're trying to be realistic about the implications of this committee would be in terms of things like, does this committee report indicating what we need a uh, whole-of-government response? Is this likely to really usher in that type of policy setting that we see and we do see in other countries and is it really likely to increase significantly a focus on mitigation efforts within Australia? It was good that the report definitely acknowledged that this was a core component because in some countries it really has focused overwhelmingly on adaptation as Mm. a dimension of thinking about security but Mm -hmm. whether this will fundamentally change either existing policy settings or the broader public conversation is definitely out for question. So along those lines, Matt, uh, one of the recommendations was that Defence establish its own emissions reduction targets regarding energy use. Uh, would, would that be likely to happen? Do, do they have any autonomy in that? There was a consensus report in that basically that all the uh, senators who were members of the committee ultimately agreed to release it, but they also, as is relatively common practice, the senators who were associated with different political parties had a response at the end so they felt these are issues that weren't emphasised as much or these were where we had points of difference. So the Greens were saying, you know, really, this should be the basis for having a fundamentally significant target when it comes to emissions reduction in general, whereas the coalition senators noted that some of the recommendations, specifically including the idea of targets, were unnecessary at the defence level. So from that point of view, it's it's unlikely that we'll see that ushered in, I would think. I think there'll be an increased encouragement on all parts of defence to and the ADF to really think about reduction, but difficult to see that finding its way into sort of uniform targets in terms of reduction of uh, emissions. 
If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Beyond Zero Climate Solutions Show on 3CR or syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. And we're talking to Matt McDonald from the University of Queensland about the recent Senate inquiry into climate change and its implications on national security. Matt, you made one of the 70 submissions to the Senate inquiry. What were your recommendations? My recommendations were they really broadly consistent with, with a lot of the recommendations from those who've worked in this space for a while. So things like we can't forget mitigation as a core component. We, we need fundamentally a whole-of-government approach, especially if we do think about mitigation. So if we think about manifestations of climate changes as security challenge in terms of things like Australia's capacity to deal with an increased stress associated with our health infrastructure, with managing you know, some of the challenges that communities themselves will face in Australia, that requires a whole-of-government response. So drawing on the research, because I've been working in this area for a little while, I know a little bit about the ways in which different countries throughout the world have addressed the security implications of climate change and actually how they've thought about incorporating that consideration into existing security and defence policy settings. And so my, my submission focused a little bit on the idea that we should draw more on the way some other Western states, UK, Germany, France, even the US, have been ahead of the game and certainly well ahead of Australia on this particular issue. So while we can acknowledge, I think, that the that Defence is aware of this and has done some work in this space, they're certainly a long way behind other Western states and that was one of the other sort of contributions, I guess, especially a long way behind both where other states are with their policy settings and institutional arrangements, but also a long way behind when you think of the idea that Australia is kind of at the coalface, if you like, of some of the manifestations of climate change that will have security implications that we're talking about. Our region, obviously, in terms of humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, in terms of population movements, the exposure to disasters in general, those things are likely to hit our immediate region, including recipients of Australian aid, much harder than they are um, other parts of the world. So Australia's behind in that sense as well. So those countries that, that are much further advanced in, in dealing addressing these issues, Matt, what are they doing? What actions are they taking that, are, that we should be following? Well, some, some countries have really been... Uh, They've been doing different things, which is which has uh, been fascinating as a researcher. Perhaps doing something. Yes, um, they're doing something. That's right. So, in the UK case, there's been a whole of government focus when it's when thinking about climate security, and that's been quite a significant development. And you can see, so in this sense, security preparing for security implications of climate change is one dimension in general of the way in which the government has tried to take climate change seriously. So that's one example. Another example would be the way the the German government has really focused on the international promotion of this particular perspective and said, look, they've organised lots of conferences to say, let's bring experts together and map all the security implications of climate change. Let's get the best possible research and make other countries aware of this these likely implications. The French government has done a lot of work in the disaster relief area, in part because they recognise some degree of obligation to former colonies that are uh, obviously exposed to manifestations of climate change, especially island, former island colonies. And in the US, we've seen actually the Department of Defence has been really ahead of the game in terms of incorporating a climate security perspective 
uh, into all parts of its work for, for quite a long time, actually. And there are concerns, obviously, that uh, the Trump administration will roll a lot of the, that work back. But in the United States, defence has actually led broader policy settings across the, uh, across the rest of government. So we've seen quite different responses in different settings across those countries. But in all of those ways, I would say each of those countries is ahead of Australia. But we've only got a few more minutes and half a dozen things we still want to ask you. One of the leading aspects of this report, and the Breakthrough Organisation published a, a report recently called Disaster Alley, talking about um, the danger right in our region, the Pacific area. What were the specific recommendations about our Pacific neighbours? So the, the specific recommendation, there were, there were quite a few that made a case, including mine, that made a case that even though we've seen over the last few years we've seen the Australian government announce an additional several hundred million dollars to um, countries in the Pacific to assist with climate resilience, that actually our aid budget in general needs to devote even far more... Mm. And even that was just redirection, it wasn't new money, was it? Oh, no, of course not, no, no. So in that sense there's been greater levels of recognition, so... Most of the report um, on these particular points was really just saying we need to be aware of this is going to be where a lot of the manifestations of climate change will really have direct security implications and Australia should take this even more seriously than it is rather than necessarily specifically this is what Australia should do in terms of setting up offices or anything like that in the region. So did you find it disappointing in things it didn't recommend or didn't go far enough? Not, no, it's, it's interesting. I didn't find it, uh, I, was, I was perhaps cynical, but I was, mildly, um, I was mildly happy to see reference to mitigation and the idea of a whole of government response. It's been more the case that we won't tend to, that the coalition members' response was a little bit disappointing in terms of emphasising that, you know, we don't need to do a lot more than we currently do in this space. And it's disappointing that it probably hasn't had, this particular inquiry hasn't had the same, it hasn't been a a deal breaker in terms of broader public debate. We've not seen a lot of reporting Mm. on it. No, it wasn't mentioned, has it? No, it's been very quiet, hasn't it? Mm, It has. And I suppose that, you know, there's nothing surprising in the um, lack of reaction from the coalition in terms of any sort of climate change push. They're found to be wanting all the time. So what then happens next with the output of the Senate inquiry? Is there an obligation for the government to do anything? Because they're good at not doing it. <laughs> there's certainly no, there's no obligation. So you often see, we saw, again, with more controversial issues, it's more and more likely that you, you don't get responses directly to some of the bigger issues. So in 2000, we saw a major report for the Senate Environment Communication, Information Technology and Arts Reference Committee in called The Heat Is On, that focused on climate change and made a series of recommendations. And it made more of a splash than this one, but the government's response to it was really a combination of we think we're already doing this or we think this is just not in the Australian national interest, these different recommendations. There, there will be a little bit of that when it comes to some of the more ambitious recommendations, those focusing on new institutional arrangements uh, at a larger level, like a climate, anything like you know, a, a climate security representative that's cross-government, anything like mitigation targets, anything like a broader focus on 
mitigation won't get off, but there may be some dimensions where defence would be encouraged to certainly think about are there elements of this inquiry that we can incorporate into our ongoing practice. I imagine defence is in between a rock and a hard place though, isn't it? Because they do have to do something. They know they have to do something. They've been doing it for 10 years or more. And yet if the government is um, saying let's not do very much, how does that sit with them? What do they do? It's fascinating, actually, and again, this is one of the one of the things I noted in in that piece in the conversation is that my discussions with defence officials have basically indicated that there's a degree of frustration that they don't feel they can get ahead of this to the degree that they can, just because the broader politics of climate change in Australia is so toxic that any form of intervention that's seen as let's really raise the stakes, you know, from our from our department's point of view, Australia needs to be doing it a lot more to reduce emissions. That's precisely the sort of thing that those higher up within the Department of Defence feel that they just absolutely can't say, even though they recognise that it is a a fundamental sort of threat in the long term to their activities and indeed to Australian security. So that part of it is is fascinating that, that those officials are acutely aware that this is a problem, but feel hamstrung by the toxic politics. Fascinating is one mm. word. Scary is another. That's right. <laughs> we're, we're in our last minute, Matt, so we will ask you to tell us where listeners can find out more. But first of all, the, um, the pearl of a question, what would need to happen for climate change to become a major focus at the next federal election in, in your view? Wow. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's a money question. It I is. think some degree of leadership really would Yay. would be the uh, would be the issue there that you'd need leadership, and that applies to both sides of both sides of the uh, chamber. It's mm. difficult to see at the moment. It really is, and I, I don't want to leave listeners with a greater sense of cynicism than they already have. But yes, it's hard to see what would enable this to become a real focus of the next federal election. One thing I would say is that actually the Lowy Institute surveys over time have have indicated consistently there is this inverse relationship between whether the government is actually doing anything substantive and whether people are concerned about it. When they're inactive, concern rises. So we can hope that people will get mobilised. Yep. All right. Very quickly, where can our listeners find out more? I'd actually suggest having a look at some of the outstanding submissions to that Senate inquiry. It really did bring about the latest research and it's public, all publicly available. So that is, I think, as good okay. a place to start as any. Thank you very much, Matt MacDonald from the University of Queensland. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero show brought to you by the Climate Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and, it's re- and we're recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show again or any of the others we've done, go to bze.org.au and click on the podcast tab. If you enjoy the program and can help keep us on air by donating, then please go to the BZE site and click on the donate button. Thanks for joining us this week and we hope to see you again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.